like suddenly I went from somebody who was like, how's the writing going? And I'm like, oh, it's fine. And everyone's kind of feeling sorry for me to somebody who's like talking to Amy Schumer on the phone and arranging to get dinner in New York so we can talk about, you know, working together. Hello, and welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful, and today I am thrilled to be joined by Alina Dillon, author of the novel Eyes Turned Skyward. Oh man, it was, I mean, this book has been such a journey. Like I said, it, I, I started writing it 10 years ago, um, and in the first 20 um, versions, it was just a pure historical fiction, one timeline. Alina Dillon is the author of Mercy House, a Library Journal Best Book of 2020, which has been optioned as a television series produced by Amy Schumer. She is also the author of The Happiest Girl in the World, a Good Morning America pick, and My Body is a Big Fat Temple, a memoir of pregnancy and early parenting. Her work has appeared in publications including The Daily Beast, Lit Hub, River Teeth, Slice Magazine, The Rumpus, and Bustle. She teaches creative writing and lives on the North Shore of Boston, where she has a three-year-old son and a new baby. She describes writer motherhood in three words, fierce, tender, marathon. Today, I'll be talking to her about her new novel, Eyes Turned Skyward. Well, the first thing I'd like to ask is, what is the WASP program and what led you to write about it? Sure. Um, WASP stands for Women Air Force Service Pilots, um, and they were the first women to fly military aircraft in the United States. They were called into service uh, during World War II, as so many women were called into the workforce um, as men were needed more overseas. Um, they invited women to apply for this program to take over all the domestic flying duties um, in, in the United States. Um, so ferrying, towing, strafing missions, um, things like that, testing repaired planes. Um, at, at some point in the war, these WASPs were, were doing all of those domestic flight duties. Um, and it was dangerous. Um, you know, they, they, it was, a, a they went, they were trained, um, in a military training program. Um, some died in training, some died in, in service, um, and they uh, were hoping to be enlisted in the military. Um, at some point, there were bills that were presented to con Congress in effort. Um, in, in that effort, um, they were, you know, endorsed by a lot of their um, commanding officers. <clears throat> but ultimately, as the war came to a close, they weren't needed anymore. Um, they kind of, so the, the, the program was dismissed, the women were dismissed. 
Um, they had to pay for their own accommodations home, just as they'd had to pay for their own funerals. Um, they weren't given like those kind of ben military benefits. Um, and then they weren't given any veteran benefits post-war. And in fact, um, people basically forgot about them in the 70s um, when the Air Force invited women to join them. They announced that women were going to fly military aircraft for the very first time. And there was an, an outcry from these wasps, wasps saying, well, what did we do? You know, like the, we, we, we were those women. Um, and, and after some protests and um, a, a, a demand for support, they were then given veterans benefits 30 years later. That's the general overview of the wasps. Um, I came upon them. I had never heard of them. Um, when I was thinking, I started this book about 10 years ago. And I was kind of intrigued by a story of my great aunt who um, drove with a bunch of girlfriends across country in a van um, from New York to California um, and worked as nurses there. And that struck me as just so unusual for the time and it was such an adventure. Um, so I was, I was thinking maybe I'd write a book about her. So I just started kind of researching, just plain researching the time period of, of the 50s. And then I just kind of kept inching backwards a bit um, into the 40s. And through my research, um, I came upon the wasp and I could not believe that I had never heard of them before. Um, and I knew that I had to put my my aunt's story aside um, and, and, and write a story about these women instead. Yeah, that's really interesting that they contributed so much and got absolutely no credit and they weren't even, you know, and didn't even get to join the military. Um, were there any evaluations of their progress? I mean, were they were they on par with where they needed to be? Yeah, they there were studies um, that that, um, in fact, showed that they were outperforming the men. Um, there were tons of studies that were some very infuriating, like that they were, um, evaluating whether, um, accidents that occurred, like were influenced by their menstruation. Um, and that, that turned out to be false. Um, it just, they, they, the, the letter that dismissed them, um, included the sentiment that I'm sure you wouldn't want to put your men out of jobs. So I'm sure you understand why you need to go home now wow that's 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 too bad for for them who, who who contributed so much um and then weren't able to participate or get any kind of of yeah I, mean, I think based on my research a lot of the women were unsurprised and were kind of had prepared themselves for that and um you know hadn't expected this to go beyond the war um you know like the, the a lot of the mentality of, of a lot of women at that point were kind of like, this is our civic duty. This is our, 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 our patriotic responsibility. And then yes, we will do what's best for our family and our countrymen. Um, but I mean, I had to imagine that at least some of them would have been like dreaming of this alternate future that had suddenly been presented to them um, in which their skills were what was prized over their domestic positions. Um, so, so my character certainly was heartbroken um, when it turned out that, that she wasn't going to be able to pursue what she was so, what she had proven to be so capable of doing. 
Oh, well, let's talk about the characters a little bit. Um, why why is it that Kathy, the the mother, wasn't able to, to talk about it? Is it was it common among those women, or did she have other reasons? So Peggy is the character who's the wasp, um, and uh, she. For, I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but um, there something had happened while she was. Um, performing her duties that she took um, as she took responsibility for and felt extremely guilty about. And she was carrying that um, with her. And also she was just so bitter that her country had just kind of cast her aside and she didn't want to kind of um, she didn't want to tell that story to her daughter for the fear that her daughter would learn the lesson that, even if you are capable and um, ambitious and deserving that you might not get what you want. So because of her, this secret that, that had occurred during um, her time in training, and I wish I could say more, but that's kind of like a, a big plot point. And because of just being generally disregarded, she um, kept this secret from her family. Um, and then her daughter, Kathy only finds out about it Um Years, decades later, when her mother is um, invited in 2010 to receive the Congressional Gold Medal, which was given to all, all WASP at that time, but of course, you know, like 60 years later, um, and uh, and confronts her mother about it and kind of puts together this these puzzle pieces as to why her childhood was the way it was, why her, her mother was so stormy um, and complicated and mysterious and um, her daughter wants to get the recognition that her mother deserves as well as now have like this reconciliation of their relationship now that she understands it better. And just as a, you know, an element of craft, you, you decided to write this as a dual timeline narrative, which seems to be growing in popularity. At what point during your research did that idea kind of dawn on you? And, and why did you decide to go forward with that? Oh, man, it was I mean, this book has been such a journey. Like I said, it, I, I started writing it 10 years ago. Um, and in the first 20 um, versions, it was just a pure historical fiction, one timeline. Um, so I had Peggy uh, go to California, just like my aunt did, um, and work in a factory before she then finds out about the Wasp and then goes to Texas and is trained. And um, there were other, you know, romance lines and other female characters that she came upon. And um, I was like, had a whole different character arc. Um, and I was toiling over that. And it was, I had three different agents submit it um, for for publication and it just wasn't working. It wasn't the right story. And so I kind of put it aside for many years. And then I had, um, you know, my, I had two other novels come out. And um, when I was thinking about what project to work on next, like, I just, I just couldn't, I had like, these, these women were just stuck with me, like the, the wasp. And I, I didn't want to, you know, put it aside completely. So then I, I thought, well, maybe there's a way that I can reinvent the story. Um, and, and at that point, I was kind of writing more contemporary plots that were, I mean, historical in a way. I mean, um, they took place, the Mercy House took place in 2010, so it's recent history. Um, and The Happiest Girl um, kind of spanned the last decade or so. Um, again, recent history, but they were both inspired by true events um, and, and based on incredible women. So they were they're very similar to kind of the theme of this book. 
Um, so I thought maybe I could kind of incorporate um, some of the workings of the historical fiction manuscript that I had um, with kind of the more contemporary style that I'd been drifting toward. Um, so that's when <clears throat> I sat down with my agent, Nikki Richardson, and we kind of talked about um, what ways we could kind of update the story. Um, and it occurred, like, I had been interested in, like, how the women who had been through this kind of experience where they were so needed and they stepped up and performed and did exactly what was, was necessary and then were kind of put back in their place, how that must be, how, how that could haunt them um, if they had, you know, tasted this potential um, that they, you know, that piqued their appetite. So then I considered like what happened to Peggy in the years that followed and how her regrets and resentments could be passed down to the next generation um, and being, having this opportunity then to analyze the ways in which sexism and misogyny and the patriarchy have evolved over the decades, but haven't disappeared. So then I could like have these parallel confrontations between what Peggy um, experienced and like what her daughter's experiencing in a different form and hear the echoes of what her mother went through. Well, you, you touched on a lot of things that I wanted to, to ask you about. Um, one, I guess, is your experience working with, with an agent. So for any writers that are listening, I guess I'm curious in your early drafts and were you unagent, unagented? And then once you did get an agent for your other novels, um, tell me about more about how your agent was able to help you develop this story so that it could get, get out into the world. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I have had a kind of jagged path to publication. I think like so many other writers, um, I've, I'm on my, I, I'm, I'm, my current agent is my third agent. Um, and I worked with, so I worked with two others prior who, um, who worked with th like two manuscripts that will never see the light of day because that's the, like, they just never, probably never deserved to, um, as well as this, what, what was this book, this historical fiction book. So my first agent, um, was the first one to submit it. And then she submitted it widely, um, from traditional publishers and they were intrigued by the premise. I think whenever anyone hears about these, these WASP, they, you know, are, you know, it res the story resonates, um, and they are still so under discussed. Um, but because the character arc wasn't quite right, um, I hadn't really found it yet. They were ultimately were rejections. Um, so I kept working on it and then I, I got a different agent, um, and he was unwilling to go to the places that had been submitted before. Um, and I think that's probably common with traditional publishing. Like, once you submit a manuscript, um, it, like that option is exhausted. Um, so he only submitted it to like a few that hadn't been placed before. Um, and again, the, the rejections. Um, so I put the book aside. I wrote um, Mercy House. Um, and the, my agent at the time um, didn't like that character. And then I wrote a different book and he didn't like that character. So then I was like, okay, maybe this isn't a good fit. Um, so that's when I reached out to my current agent, um, and I gave her Mercy House first, and she sold it very quickly. Um, and then I was writing The Happiest Girl in the World, um, and she sold that quickly too. And then when we were discussing what my my third book would be, I brought up, uh, she read the historical fiction novel as it was. Um, 
And she said, you know, maybe, you know, maybe we can present this to your editor. Um, but she just wasn't, she knew that it wasn't quite right, but wasn't sure how to fix it. So we kind of put that aside for a while and I was working on other projects. Um, and then I, like a year later to maybe two years later, I brought up the idea again. And then that's when I said, I, you know, I'm thinking of perhaps transforming it into a dual timeline. Um, and she was kind of excited by that idea. So then we were just kind of brainstorming together what the, the, the contemporary timeline might consist of that could really hold its weight against something like this, you know, a, a, a woman pilot um, during a war, a, a woman war, war pilot, like what contemporary plot line would hold the reader's attention and would be relevant um, and ha like, ha like bridge the times because like you, with dual timelines are tricky. They have to like stand alone, but then also be connected and, and, and be both have both stories be relevant. So like, how can we do this? So together um, we, we came up with this proposal. So I would send her, you know, a pitch of the contemporary timeline and kind of weaving it in with where the historical timeline would be. And then she would, she came back to me with notes about like, um, you know, some of, some of my choices that she, that she disagreed with or thought that we could flesh out more or um, kind of dramatize a bit more to balance out the action of the war scenes. Um, and we went back and forth. Like we, we were very jazzed about this idea. Um, so we went back and forth very quickly. Um, you know, like a few drafts a week for probably two weeks until we came up with a proposal that we were both excited about. Um, so then I started writing the contemporary plot line and that probably took, cause, um, probably another month for me to write like 30 pages or so. And then weaving it in with the historical, I was able to have like, you know, 50 or 60 solid pages with the big pitch, um, to then present to my editor. So then that was my first project that I had pitched on a partial manuscript. Um, and she accepted it. And then I had a year to finish writing um, and luckily I finished early because then I presented it back to my editor and she had great feedback um, and I had plenty of time then to, to revise it um, and flesh out some of the, the relationships and, and history and stuff. Um, and then, yeah, we got it. We got it um, all in shape and time. Well, that's really interesting to hear the behind the scenes of uh, and the whole process of how, how all that works. And it sounds to me like the third agent was definitely the right partner for you, unless she's a miracle worker. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 really nice to have um, partners, like literary partners that you can collaborate with. Um, like maybe some writers can stand alone, but I found that like I really thrive um, in relationship with somebody. So like when we can talk about a story and characters or, um, you know, I can get editorial feedback like I. I just need a lot of readers and a lot of people to kind of like redirect me or suggest, have different suggestions. Um, so yeah, I, I think I, for, I, again, like I, I, maybe other writers are really independent workers, um, but I, I like kind of having a team. Hey listeners. This is Colin Mustful, the founder and editor of History Through Fiction, and I just wanted to take a quick break to tell you about a book we're really excited about. 
It's called My Mother's Secret, a novel of the Jewish Autonomous Region by New York Times best-selling author Alina Adams. The book begins in 1988 when Lena's father hints at a family secret. After Lena confronts her mother, Regina, about the secret, the story takes readers back to the 1930s Soviet Union when Regina flees Moscow for the Jewish Autonomous Region of Birobidzhan. What follows is a harrowing story of loyalty, courage, heartbreak, and finally, joy. It's a wonderful story and we hope you'll consider reading it. You can find out more by going to historythroughfiction.com slash my-mothers-secret. That's historythroughfiction.com slash my-mothers-secret. If you pick up a copy direct through our online store, podcast listeners can get $5 off the retail price by using the code PODCAST at checkout. Thank you, and please enjoy the rest of the interview. I want to continue a little more uh, to hear about about your experience um, and the long process of publishing, because anyone looking in from the outside, it, it's like, wow, Alina Dillon has really burst onto the scene. She must have done a ton of writing during the pandemic, but I'm sure your experience is much different as you've already kind of articulated. Tell me then, how does it feel for you to arrive at this point in your career and and what was it like along the way? Did you ever feel like you weren't going to make it to this point? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it took 10 years from when I like graduated from my MFA and really committed myself to being a writer to the, the publication of my first book. Um, so in those 10 years, there was like, certainly it was rife with doubt. Um, it's really hard to to have so many rejections and not lose faith in yourself. Like, I'm not sure anybody can sustain that much, like that much negative feedback. Um, so there, I started as a nonfiction writer. Um, and then I, I, I think I wrote two manuscripts, like two full manuscripts of non nonfiction and couldn't get an agent. Couldn't place it with small presses, um, probably for the best in retrospect. And, uh, then I was, you know, I, I kept hearing like for nonfiction, you really need a, a huge hook or a big platform. So I was like, how do I develop my platform? Well, maybe I can be a fiction writer and develop my platform that way and then pivot back to nonfiction as if it was that easy. Um, so, so then I started writing fiction for the first time, um, probably in my, like I was in my mid twenties at that point. Um, and again, I wrote those two manuscripts that did get agented, um, but we never sold them. And again, probably for the best. Um, <clears throat> and then, yeah, it was, you know, it, it was just really hard to, to, to spend probably years submitting to agents, so many rejections, um, finally get an agent, think that this was going to happen, write two books, not happening, write a third book, not happening. Um, you know, have that courage to leave that agent, not knowing if I'd get another one getting another one and again, writing, you know, two books. And, um, yeah, every year I just thought to myself, like, I'm only working part-time because I'm like trying to devote so much energy to this writing career. 
But now I'm like eight years into part-time work and like, I'm, you know, if, I, if I'm not going to make it as a writer, I need to kind of refocus on my career because people are going to ask why I've spent eight years post-graduation on part-time gigs. Um, and so like, it's, yeah, it's really scary to try to find that balance and, and to believe in yourself, not knowing what the future holds. So every year I just like would make this deal with my husband, like, okay, one more year and I'm just going to put this aside and not do it and just get full-time work. And we just like kept extending that deadline year after year after year. Um, because anytime that I took a break from writing, I would just get so cranky and frustrated. Um, and like, this was just something that I needed to do on not necessarily a daily basis, although that's ideal, but um, just regularly, it needs to be part of my regular habit, like running or reading, um, you know, it's just, it's just something that fulfills me that is necessary. Um, and then, yeah, so now to have three novels under my belt and one memoir of like the pregnancy memoir, um, it feels, it feels really good. It's, it's, um, it's, it's super validating. I mean, look, when I, when I got that agent, the, my third agent for Mercy House, I, again, I was like, this is probably just, it could just be another agent that's going to submit stuff and, not, it's not going to work out and I'll just be where back to where I started. Um, so I, I didn't, I wasn't holding out a lot of hope, but then we signed in May and in June I was fielding calls from producers and actresses in Hollywood who wanted to option the book as a television series, even before we had a publishing deal. So it was like, so, like suddenly I went from somebody who was like, how's the writing going? And I'm like, oh, it's fine. And everyone's kind of feeling sorry for me to somebody who's like talking to Amy Schumer on the phone and arranging to get dinner in New York so we can talk about, you know, working together. And that was absurd and surreal and extremely satisfying because it was like probably the first moment where I was like, okay, maybe I actually have talent. Like maybe this is something that I can let myself be serious about and believe in um, because, you know, Amy is such an accomplished person in her field and so talented and I admire her so much. And if she thinks that my work is worthy, then like I can let myself believe that my work is worthy too. Well, that is just a fantastic story. And I have to be honest, the first part of it was painful to listen to <laughs> just, just hearing about everything you went through. So, you know, way to, way to stick through it, way to go. Yeah. I mean, again, it's because I had no choice. Like I, I just was not happy when I wasn't writing. So, I mean, it's, it, there's perseverance, I guess, but it's also just like obligatory. I am curious uh, among the rejections and, and maybe some negative criticism, was there anything that stood out to you as, as some positive constructive feedback that really helped you along the way? Um, yeah. So like at some point, if you're getting a lot of rejections, like, and, and certainly if there's a common thread, you, you know, you need to ask yourself if it's worth paying attention to. Um, a lot of my feedback earlier on, I'm wondering if I would get the same feedback now because the culture has changed. So like 10 years ago, a lot of what I was hearing was your, your female characters are unlikable. And that was certainly the case with Peggy in the historical fiction manuscript. Um, and I wonder now if, if people would give Peggy, as I had portrayed her at the time, more permission to be 
you know, these negative traits, um, which were, you know, she had, she was vain. Um, she was kind of arrogant, um, you know, things that, that we, we let, we allow our male characters to be, but that we had held our female characters to a higher standard. Um, and like lately I've seen so many more complicated, thorny women appear in fiction and on the television screen. And I think that's like something definitely to celebrate because, we had this tendency to only be interested in like these extraordinary superhero women. Um, and I think now there's kind of more space for us to acknowledge the variety of women and, and to let women be human. Um, so while I think that I, I, there were, there were faults in the story. I wonder um, if I had introduced it at the time or if I had introduced it now, um, if it would be, if it would be received differently. Yeah, definitely. I, as you were saying that, all I could think of was the character of Ruth in Ozark. I don't know if you watch her. that show. I yeah. just love, I love her as a character. Yeah, there's, I mean, all the winners from, I think it was the Emmy, yeah, the Emmys this year were just like these surprise, like these, these, yeah, flawed female characters like Mayor of East Town or the Queen. Um, like they're just like, yeah, it, there's a different landscape for women, and I think it's really exciting. Well, your your novel covers some very important topics, and as the, the description says, um, it talks about unheralded female heroism, transformation of misogyny, inherited inheritance, and ultimately reconciliation. Um, was it important to you to tackle those topics, and was that a challenge? Um, it, yeah, I mean, I think it was important to me because it's probably what drew me to the material. I mean, certainly the unheralded female heroism, um, is what, is what compelled me to continue writing about the Wasp over and over and over again is because like, I've been working on this story for 10 years and like, I don't feel like there are any, like they, they still haven't kind of deserved or they haven't earned the reputation that they deserve. Like still when I like to bring up the topic, a lot of people still have never heard of them. Um, so I think, um, yeah, I, th I think that is definitely what drew me to the t material and what I wanted to highlight in the book. Um, and then as we were developing the, the dual timelines, I was definitely interested in misogyny and how um, that would haunt Peggy and cause her character to harden um, between joining the Wasp and then fall in the years following and how Kathy, her daughter, um, would be confronting the same issues in, in a different form. Um, and then their relationship, their dynamic is so kind of um, multidimensional and complicated, like so many human relationships are. Um, but ultimately, I wanted them to find a way to like see each other for the first time. So like, that's where the reconciliation comes in. And what do you want readers to, to come away with um, after, after reading this novel? I mean, obviously you want them to learn the history, um, but bringing it to their daily lives and where we are today, um, what, what can they glean from it? I think maybe more than anything, it's, it's a mother daughter story um, about like what we hold against our, our parents, um, without really understanding the people they were before they became our parents and how those experiences reverberated through our upbringing. Um, 
So perhaps I think like maybe the the strongest impression would be to like have readers walk away and reconsider who their parents are and what their childhood um, meant to them um, and maybe to view it with a little bit more leniency and forgiveness. Yeah, definitely a little being a little bit more more humble about what your parents had to experience because it's it's just so difficult to imagine when you're that young and the times were different and circumstances were different. And I think we kind of take that for granted when we become adults and, and our parents are then different people after that. Yeah. Um, so you teach creative writing and I'm always curious about, is it exasperating for you? But also what kind of things can you learn as a teacher that help you in your own writing? Um, I wouldn't say it's exasperating. Um, but so I, I teach mainly online, which I, well, I teach all online now since I've had um, children, um, which I don't find as satisfying as in-person classes, but I, I used to be like really invigorated by the classroom energy. Um, and, and now it's, it is a little bit more draining just having, you know, these, these student papers submitted virtually. And then, um, sometimes it is a little bit of a slog, um, to, to read all of those. Um, but I, I'm able to like, by, by kind of conveying some of those basic fundamental lessons, um, it's always a good reminder to me, um, because if I hadn't, you know, without that, I wouldn't really be able to consider just like the tenants over and over again. And, um, you know, those, those basics are of like characterization and world building and, um, plot structure, all that stuff is good to kind of just refresh, um, over and over again, even if you're going to, you know, break the rules, um, to, to, to like realize like where, or to be reminded where it all began and where, where I started, um, I think is helpful as a writer. Yeah. I, I think in the same way, it's always helpful as a writer to go back and, and read a book of craft. Um, you know, you can never get too much of that. Yeah. So what are you working on now? What's next for you? Uh, so I have a couple projects in the works. I'm still, I'm like kind of working with my agent to see what we're going to present to my editor next. Um, there's some, there, uh, I'm trying to think if anything predates the pandemic. Uh, yeah, there's still two projects that I wrote before the pandemic that I think um, still have potential and, and could be recycled. And then there's one that I've been working on within the last year. So it's kind of just a matter of which one we move forward with at this point. Well, Alina, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I want to congratulate you too on all your success. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.